of this whole study that we've done over the past few months, uh, really over the past few years, back to the beginning of Exodus. But we're getting close to the end here. And today's message is called Sihon and Og. Yeah, that makes sense, right? You're like, oh yeah, I remember Sihon and Og. What are those? What is, what is that? Those are made up names. No, those are actual names. And uh, I know that it's weird. I know that that title is weird. But I'm actually really pumped about what we're going to talk about today. And I thought it was, there are a lot of weird names in the passage we're going to read today. A lot of weird names. And, and because of that, sometimes we zone out. But I wanted to highlight these two. And you'll see why, as we go through it, uh, why those two names kind of stick out to me and why they are uh, something that we're going to focus on today. The rest of the names in the story, you can just kind of overlook and, and just uh, Charlie Brown teacher them if you want as we go past them. All right. Um, you know that moment when something clicks in you? When you're like, you've been struggling to get it and you just haven't been able to, it seemed confusing, it seemed overwhelming, it seemed like maybe other people got it, but you didn't, and you were like, how did they get it and I can't get it? I know in, in college, taking math courses, uh, when I, they, would, they would explain a new concept and I would sit there and think, how does that make sense at all, right? I don't even know what you're talking about. And then they would give you all this homework to do, and you'd work on it, work on it, work on it. And then, like, then a week later, you're like, oh, that makes total sense. It was a, there was a process from a new concept and kind of working it out, putting it in your hands, practicing with it, to the place where you could be like, okay, the light bulb went on. Our youngest, Dustin, is like the master at this. And in the most, like, he would find something that would fascinate him. And then in like this tenacious... Like, Dustin, you don't know, think of him as, he's such a tenacious guy. He's such an easygoing guy. But in the most easygoing, tenacious way, he would just drive on stuff until he, like, mastered it. So most of you know what a yo-yo is, right? No, you don't. <laughs> if you watch Dustin play with a yo-yo, it's a whole different thing than what we think of as like a yo-yo he would like they fling this thing around and it lands on the string and it bounces and they twist it and turn it and all kinds of stuff that I'm like who even came up with that if it, it takes so much skill and so much practice and he would go down the basement and he would practice this and practice it and hit himself in the head and you know bruises everywhere yo-yo bruises you know it's a contact sport right um and yet he got really really good at that and he actually won a contest on the Ocean City Boardwalk for yo-yoing. Now, it, he deserved to win, but it also helped that more than half the crowd was our family and the winner was decided by applause. So, and there's Rubik's Cube. Like he, I don't know if you guys do Rubik's Cube ever. You guys are good at Rubik's Cube. How many people masters? He... He really got fast at it, so much so that we took him to a competition where a world record was set, and he was in the competition. Like, he wasn't, like, up top, but he, I think it was, like, 20, uh, 25 seconds or something he would solve that thing three times in a row. Like, it's crazy how good you can get. It don't start that way. You never start that way. But with practice and practice and practice, and you learn and you make mistakes and you fix mistakes, and then you do it over and over and over again until it's second nature. And some of those things, it's like, yeah, well, that's nice, and I don't have time for all that. But guess what? We all do this process in our lives every day. 
We are in a process where we are learning and, and it sometimes is slow and sometimes we just keep stumbling and falling down and it doesn't click and we can't find our balance and we don't know how to do this and some other people seem to have it all figured out. I don't have it all figured out. And what am I supposed to do with that? And it just keeps going over and over and over again. It can really wither your heart and discourage you to the point of wanting to throw in the towel. Today, I want to remind you that for the people of God, there comes a moment when it clicks. When something that God has been working on in you finally fits. You get it. And, and you, here it is. I've got, Paul talks about this confidently in Philippians 1. He talks about, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. It is God that is at work in us. And so sometimes we get really frustrated with the process. We get really tired of failing at practice and practicing, 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 especially when we look at somebody else who seems to have gotten it, which I don't even know how we can tell if they've gotten it or not because we don't see like God sees. But we think they've gotten it and we can't get it. And what's wrong with me? I must be defective. I'm reminding you it's not about you. The one who is your Savior is at work in you and He will not fail you. As long as we are trusting and learning, God will get us there. So as a word of encouragement to you, in the midst of whatever process, learning, training, balance, whatever thing you're trying to figure out, God is at work and He will not fail. It may be a long process, but God will get you there. And so I say all that because we've been on this long journey with Israel from the beginning of Exodus, watching them try to figure out how to live, how to act, and at the base of it, how to trust God like God's people should trust. So far, we've seen them get it a few times. But most of the time, they do not. And what I want to say to you is, until now. Because what we're going to look at today, in these three stories, is the moment when it feels like they get it. When the mindset and the, the actions reflect the fact that they understand who God is and what He's inviting them into. And it brings a difference in the outcomes from what we've seen to this moment. We've seen them face judgment and military defeat, plagues, poisonous snakes, all kinds of stuff because they came to moments like we're going to read about today and they did something different. They complained, they doubted, they rebelled. But not this day. This time, they don't. And I don't have time to read the whole chapter. The whole chapter really is about that. We've already looked at the bronze snake, but we're going to start down at verse 16. I just want to touch on this verse because I think it sets it up, and I think from our experience, we can see the contrast pretty clearly. So verse 16, it says this. From there, they continued on to Beer, the well where the Lord said to Moses, gather the people together and I will give them water. Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, sing about it, about the well that the princes dug, that the nobles of the people sank, the nobles with scepters and staffs. Then they went from the wilderness to Matanah, from Matanah to Nahalil, from Nahalil to Bamoth, from Bamoth to the valley of Moab, where the top of Pisgah overlooks the wasteland. Now there's a lot to this story, a lot we could dig into the story, but I just want to focus on one thing. 
They are in the journey. They have traveled around Edom, that big long journey I showed on the map back, back then. And right above Edom is Moab. And right above Moab, there's this, the, the, the territory of the Amorites. And then there's the nation of the Ammonites, Amorites, Ammonites, right? They are on the east side of Moab. And they are out there on this journey. And this particular time here, they are without water. Oh, no. <laughs> They're without water. This is going to go poorly, right? That, that every time they're without water, something bad happens. But this time, when God says, I'm going to bring you water, what do they do? They sing a song. And you're like, well, that's weird. There's no commentary. There are no snakes. There's no lightning and thunder from God. There's no, there's no complaining. They sing a song. And the interesting thing about this song is that it's in the imperative. It's like spring up, oh well. It's a, it's a command to the... So we don't have a lot of details on exactly what transpired, but the clues make us believe that they decided to sing a song to the water that was promised when it hadn't sprung up yet. They got it. God said, gather my people together and I will give them water. And so they start, well, it's the, the, the narrative there about the, the well that the princes dug, the nobles of the people sang, is like they are digging in the trenches for when the water comes so they can distribute it amongst the millions of people. They are preparing for the water that God promised before the water showed up. And you're like, Israel, finally, you got it. Isn't this so cool? In other words, for the first time in the story that we've read, in the face of a serious crisis, in the face of a lack that could destroy them, Israel chooses bold faith. They turn away from complaining. They turn away from doubt. And they had done that over and over and over again. They had lost and lost and lost. They had literally complained themselves to death. But now they got it. The last water crisis brought, uh, brought complaining and snakes. And that was just earlier in this chapter. <laughs> we talked about that a few weeks ago. But the story of God's people is not just one of failure and floundering faith. The story of your journey with God is not just a story of failure and doubt and floundering faith. It will include and it always will include the moment of redemption when God finally breaks through in you and you get it. So if you're not there yet, what I'm saying to you is it's coming. It is coming. So don't give up hope and don't throw in the towel and don't believe that you're somehow defective and you won't get it because it's not about you. It's about the one who is at work in you. And so these people who have failed more than I can even describe in a minute finally get it. And then this story goes from this song about a well, this choice of faith, it moves right into two battles. And as I read this story, it will feel familiar to you. Like, maybe we just read this. There's a, there's a song in the middle of it. The song is not going to be the, the focus of our story. But read, read with me verse 21 down to verse 32. Israel sent messengers to say to Sihon, 
king of the Amorites. Let us pass through your country. We will not turn aside into any field or vineyard or drink water from any well. We will travel along the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sihon would not let Israel pass through his territory. He mustered his entire army and marched out into the wilderness against Israel. When he reached Jahaz, he fought with Israel. Israel, however, put him to the sword and took over his land from the Arnok to the Jabbok, but only as far as the Ammonites, because their border was fortified. Israel captured all the cities of the Amorites and occupied them, including Heshbon and all its surrounding settlements. Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and had taken from him all his land as far as the Arnon. This is, that is why the poets say, Come to Heshbon and let it be rebuilt. Let Sihon's city be restored. Fire went out from Heshbon, ablaze from the city of Sihon. It consumed Ar of Moab, the citizens of Arnon's heights. Woe to you, O Moab. You are destroyed, people of Chemosh. He has given up his sons as fugitives and his daughters as captives to Sihon, king of the Amorites. But we have overthrown them. Heshbon's dominion has been destroyed all the way to Dibon. We have demolished them as far as Nophah, which extends to Mediba. So Israel settled in the land of the Amorites. After Moses had sent spies to Jazer, the Israelites captured its surrounding settlements and drove out the Amorites who were there. So we read this story, and I don't know if you remember, but this is a very similar setup to what we saw back at Kadesh. When they were at Kadesh, just a few chapters ago, they were back at Kadesh. Miriam just died. Aaron was about to die. They were going to start heading towards the promised land, and they sent a message to Edom. And the message is almost word for word this message. Please let us go through your land. We won't touch anything. We won't wreck anything. We won't take anything. Please let us go through your land. And Edom said to them, No. Then they sent another message, and Edom said, no, and they brought their army out, and Israel turns away and goes around the nation of Edom. Much longer route than they originally would have had to go. So it feels like we're back with the exact same request, with almost the exact same response, a a no followed by an, an army. But here, God gives Israel victory in battle. And the difference, when you read a narrative, you're asking, why is that different? Especially when it's so parallel. It comes up to the exact same moment. And in one moment, they turn away and take a longer journey. And in the other moment, God gives them victory. And and please understand, this is pretty significant. Because there there was an actual victory at the beginning of this chapter, which we don't have a lot of details about. But Israel hasn't fought a war since they tried to get into the promised land without God the day after they refused to go in with God. So it's been decades, over 35, 37, 38 years since they fought a war. And they haven't had a victory since before Mount Sinai in Exodus 17. They haven't won a battle since before God gave them the law. Here they win a battle. And it's because there's this shift in them. This shift from 
faithless and doubting and complaining and pretty sure that God has forgotten them or that God isn't good, that, God, that, that, that their life is going to be a mess and God isn't going to save them. God's not going to show up. They've looked at the circumstances over and over. They've listened to the people around them who have told them you're, that God is not going to do this and God is not trustworthy. And they've believed it. But here, we see them turn in faith. And back in the beginning of the chapter, in the first battle, we see a clue in verse 2 where they, they turn to God and they say, out of desperation, they pray, God, if you will deliver these people into our hands, we will totally destroy their cities. And then the well incident where they sing before the water comes up. And then here we are in a battle. In spite of the snake incident between those two stories, the first battle tells us that Israel is getting us. Lord, we're in trouble, but we believe that you can save us and you will save us. We believe that you are with us and we will go into battle if you tell us that you'll be with us. For a nation that has a profound history of doubt as a reflex, this is a light bulb moment where they finally get it. And it's because of God's faithfulness. It's because of God's patience. It's because eventually the truth about who he is shows up. It's not because they became good people. It's because God stayed with it in them. When you face a shortage like water, there is no water. When you face a shortage of food with millions of people around, it's not very long before starvation becomes a real problem. Dehydration becomes a real problem. When you face an army showing up, set up against you, and you haven't fought any kind of battles in three plus decades, it's hard not to look at the stuff, which is what they always did. They always look at the circumstance. They always assess their problems in human terms. But somehow, just in time, they have learned that they can not let their circumstances be the definition of what's happening. That they can look up. They can see God. And this is just in time because they are about to enter the land that is called the promised land. And it's called the promised land over and over again because they're supposed to take it by promise. All of their actions in the coming years are supposed to be driven by the fact that God said, I'm giving you this land. And they believe it. Now, if they don't believe it, it's going to be hard for them to take the promised land. But here we are right at the edge. And it seems like the light goes on for them. So God gives them water. God gives them victory. And this, in turn, establishes this truth in their hearts for what's ahead. And one other thing before I read about round two. It says this, that... They go in this thing from nomads to settlers. They take possession of these things. They begin to settle into these lands. It's a really interesting thing for people who have been nomads living in tents for decades. Like, do you understand how big of a shift this moment is for them? That they go from tents to houses. That because of this moment of faith, 
where they said, God, we're going to fight this battle and we believe that you've got us and, that you, and then it shows that God does have them and that God leads them to victory. They follow him like they were unwilling to at the, at the precipice of the promised land before. And so God gives them these little, these little practices, these little lessons, these little opportunities for them to, to work this out, to, to find their groove, to find their balance. And immediately it results in from temporary structures to permanent ones, from tents to home, a taste of what God is going to lead them into. And God is saying to them, it's almost like you can just see it right there in the, in the narrative. God is saying to them, do you see what I want to do if you'll trust me? Do you see what I want to do? And I, you and I can understand why they couldn't see that because they were looking at, oh, here comes an army. Oh, we don't have any food. Like We can understand why they didn't see it, but we also can understand how clear God is being as he gives them a taste. And just like any new skill, this one's going to need some practice. So we're going to go right into this groove. We're going to, God is really going to make sure that he's practicing them for the promised land. What, they, what they're going to have to do when they cross the Jordan River, they're going to have to follow God and trust him. They're going to have to believe in him. They're going to have to fight battles believing that God is a God who protects them and provides for them and leads them and delivers them. They're going to have to believe that. So they're practicing that here in a small scale outside before they go in. God wants them to go into the promised land and he is preparing them, building momentum. So verse 33, down to the end of the chapter, it says this. Then they turned and went up along the road toward Bashan. And Og, king of Bashan, and his whole army marched out to meet them in battle at Adre. At, at the Lord said to Moses, do not be afraid of him, for I have delivered him into your hands along with his whole army and his land. Do to him what you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon. So they struck him down together with his sons and his whole army, leaving them no survivor, and they took possession of his land. Here we have a God who is like, okay, good job, guys. We, you learned about trusting me with just water which is a little bit simpler than trusting me in a battle. It's like not immediate threat. There's not an attack. We're just waiting. Then we went from water to like, here comes an army that's trying to destroy us, and you trusted me with that. And now, here comes another army. God says to them, don't be afraid of them. You will do exactly to them what you did to Sihon. Have you ever thought maybe... Your life feels like it does because God is building in you what you need for what's coming. That God is giving you practice in trusting Him, in lifting your eyes up, in crying out to Him. That God is giving you bite-sized lessons that are going to grow into something bigger. Maybe your life and, and the exercises of your life and the fact that you can never find your groove in faith just feels pointless to you. It feels like it's too small. It feels like it's, it's just never going to get there. It just keeps your, you're just struggling to keep your head above water. But, but God is doing kind of like in Karate Kid where Mr. Miyagi's showing him like how to paint a fence or wax a car, but he's really teaching him things he's going to need. And as he learns those things, he doesn't know what he's learning until he needs to use them. Maybe that's what's going on in your life right now. God is teaching you stuff that you're about to need. He's trying to build your life. He's trying to grow you into something. And he's, so he's progressing you. So we go from a water, 
need and, and a well that's promised. We go into to Sihon City. Now, there were, there were a lot of them, but they don't seem to have been fortified. Then we go to Og's cities, which were fortified, but they weren't a whole nation. They weren't a whole landmass. They were fortified cities. So we go kind of progressive. We kind of move along. In Sihon, we ask, and he says no. And so there's like this, we started it, and then he came at us. In Og, they don't provoke anything. He just comes their way. And think about this. They're on their way to the promised land. They're like, finally, God's taking us to the promised land. And here come problems. I thought we were going to the promise. Here come problems. God is trying to teach his people how to live like his people. And I'm saying maybe in our life, God is trying to teach us how to live like we belong to him. And so God gives them some of the promised land right here. This is the first part of the promised land he gives them. It really is an incredible moment. It's not like it comes with any fanfare. It certainly doesn't come by beginning with the, the crossing of the Jordan River and, and the Jericho thing. Like, okay, I get it. Now we're going into the promised land. No, he gives it to him here in an unexpected way. And this land that they, they, they conquer here eventually becomes territory for the tribe of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. And some of the cities they talk about here become cities of refuge for the Levites in the coming days. So they are literally receiving the promise as soon as they've learned to trust God and follow Him. Isn't God good? So you've been banging your head into the wall for 38 years, but then you say yes to God once, and He's like, good, let's do this. We think God's going to be like, oh, you think that's enough? No, God's like, I've been waiting for you to get it. I've been working for you to get it. Now let's do it. Let's go get this. I've got a a whole land of promise for you. This is also the setup to the next story. And the next story is about a man named Balaam who was hired by the king of Moab to try to curse Israel. And we're going to be on that for a while. All right. But I want to go, I just want to Sihon and Og. I just want to close this idea. I want to, to, to tell you why I thought it was important for those names to be in your head. If you're reading through the Old Testament, there's really something interesting about what we just read in the story today. It shows up, those two names show up again and again and again. If you've ever read the whole Bible through, if you've ever read one of our Bible reading plans, you've read the names Sihon and Og. You just didn't know it. The reason you didn't know it is because you do what I do. When I read these weird names and I don't know who they are, I just keep going on, right? Here we go. I don't know who that is, whatever. But it is interesting how Israel kept these stories alive. In Numbers, later on, Numbers 32, there's another reference to these kings. In Deuteronomy 1, in Deuteronomy 2, in Deuteronomy 3, in Deuteronomy 4, chapter 29, chapter 31, in Joshua chapter 2. In fact, in Joshua chapter 2, it's Rahab, when the spies go into Jericho, Rahab says, we have heard what happened to Sihon and Og. And it's what makes our hearts melt. It tells you that this was a lesson about God's power, not just for Israel, but for those that would oppose the true and living God. 
But it also shows up in Joshua 9, in Joshua 12, in Joshua 13, in Judges 11, in 1 Kings 4, in Nehemiah 9, in Psalm 135, in Psalm 136. These names show up over and over and over and over again. Now, do you understand why? This is a moment of transformation. This is a pivot for the people of Israel from acting like their God is not someone worth trusting to finally understanding I can trust him. It is a moment where they get it. And so 21 times we find the name Og after the story. And 26 times we find the name Sihon. As a matter of fact, later on we find out that Og is said to be a giant because Moses describes an iron bed in Deuteronomy 3 that he sleeps in being over 13 feet long and 6 feet wide. So they remember these things and they hold on to them. Even Nehemiah happens after the captivity. Happens like around 500 B.C. So for a thousand years or or hundreds of years, they live and breathe and hold on to these incidents that we just read today. And I think the reason is, as Israel looks at their history, as Israel reads the first four books of the Bible and looks at what their fathers did and the embarrassment and the frustration of reading that story. They love the moment when redemption comes and they hold on to it because there are going to be times when the battle comes their way for their lives and they've got to remember that holding on to the victory means we can believe that God is going to show us and God is going to bring us through and God is going to teach us. They got to believe that we can trust Him in moments where a battle comes my way and life leads me into a brick wall. When people want to impose their will on me or they want to harm me or, or tear me down. When life is full of storms and, and trouble, it is a moment where the people of God, through this story, had learned well, we, the response we want is trusting God. Our Savior. And it's what we're supposed to take from that too. We're supposed to understand from the journeys we've been on and the ways that God has practiced us that when life gets really dark and hard, I need to know how to lean in to trusting Him. And I want to show you how they do that by just reading from Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 1 to 6. Listen to what this says. Then Moses went out and spoke these words to all Israel. I am now 120 years old, and I am no longer able to lead you. The Lord has said to me, you shall not cross the Jordan. The Lord your God himself will cross over ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you and will take possession of their land. Joshua also will cross over ahead of you, as the Lord has said. And verse 4, and the Lord will do to them what he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, who he destroyed along with their land. So he references the story. Moses says, I'm done. Joshua's going to take over. But when you go in, I want you to keep two names in mind. Sihon and Og. Keep them in mind. And this is what I want them, those names to do for you. Verse 5. The Lord will deliver them to you. And you must do to them all that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, 
For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Are those precious words? I will never leave you or forsake you. The first time they show up is in reference to Sihon and Og. I will never leave you or forsake you. So no matter what happens, no matter what path I lead you down, no matter what battles show up in your life, no matter how intimidating, no matter how dangerous, no matter how dark it looks, Sihon and Og, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be afraid. Because the Lord, your God, goes with you. These are words for God's people today. They are lessons, hopefully, that you have learned by walking with your Savior. I believe God has moments of redemption for us. God has moments of getting it for us. And we are in a practicing phase in so many parts of our life. But remember what God has done. Remember what God has brought you through. Remember how He has been supernaturally faithful to you when you were unfaithful to Him. Remember that God's promise will play out, that God has saved you and that God will save you. And so, be strong and courageous. Don't be terrified and don't be afraid. For the Lord your God is with you. He will never leave you. And He will never forsake you. Let's close our service with a word of prayer. Father, this morning, I thank you for that promise. I thank you for that truth. I simply ask that you would help us to hold on to that reality for the battles that are in our life right now for the things that you're teaching us right now, for the discouragements, for the hurts, for the doubts and the fears, for the weariness, for the overwhelmedness, for all of it, Father. Help us to boil it all down to whatever it takes to understand that you are with us, that we have no cause to fear, that we have every cause to be courageous because you will never leave us and never forsake us. Help your people to know that, to believe that, and to live that. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.